You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. All right, good morning. Everyone wants to have a seat. Well, it's great to come together. Everybody, I mean, good on you. You're here this morning, despite that loss of an hour. We uh, um, are so thankful to have Miller uh, here this morning uh, joining us and leading us in worship today. And uh, uh, thankful for that school and just how it is standing on God's truth and um, still teaching all 66 books of the Bible. So, so thankful uh, for that school and what God's using through it. Uh, doing through it, sorry. Uh, well, we are back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 9 uh, this morning. And uh, uh, if you weren't with us this morning or last week, we just want to just kind of reestablish uh, what has happened as we think about um, the, the, the text this morning. We have seen uh, God destroy uh, the earth through a flood. Uh, the, the wickedness of man had got to the point where uh, God has said that it must be destroyed. And so it was destroyed except for one family, Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives, and then uh, at least two of every animal. We know the uh, clean animals. There was more than uh, just a male and female because of the sacrificial system afterwards. And so, but they are put on the ark and, and God is faithful. And we've seen that last week as the, as the ark is out there, the waters begin to recede. And God places them against a mountain so they don't have to bob up and down for the whole time. And, and uh, over time, they are able to get off the ark. And as they do, uh, Noah gives an offering to the Lord, a wholehearted worship to the Lord for what he has done. As we get into the text this morning, we, we see what life after the flood is like. Um, it's been a new creation has been made. And unfortunately, we're going to again see almost like this sequel kind of thing. We've, we were mentioning this last week. There's a recreation that happens. We see all seven days highlighted in the recreation. And now this week, as we look at that, uh, the, the, those, this first family and what they did, we see some of the same things that we've seen in Adam and Eve. And life after the flood. It's time for a new beginning. What will, what will be, what will earth be like now? Now, we, we've seen a glimpses in Genesis 8 last week. Guess what? Men and women still have sinful hearts. Yet God says, yet I will not destroy them in the same way I have destroyed them in the past. I will not bring a flood on the earth. We're going to see that highlighted in this text as well. And as we think about the text, this chapter 9, I really want us to be thinking about, am I choosing life? Yeah, am I choosing life? As I thought about, what's the application for this? We're going to learn a whole lot about our God, and that's always good. And I want you to, uh, every time you come to the Word, you need to be saying, what does this teach me about our God? Am I worshiping Him accurately? Do, do I see Him in His fullness, or am I making a God of my own making? 
And so we're going to learn a lot about our God as we go through this. But then there's, so, so what should I do? Well, we ought to worship this God. And then secondly, I want you to be thinking about, am I choosing life in the way that God would want me to choose life? That will be the, the two things I want you to be thinking about as we study. Before we get into the text, though, let's ask the Lord to help us to understand these things this morning. Lord God, we thank you so much for this time in your word. Lord, your word is so rich. It's so good. And we're reminded what it says in Hebrews, that your word uh, is sharp and powerful and, and penetrates our hearts. God, that's our prayer this morning. God, we're so thankful that you know every heart here today. And we ask that you would take your word, that you would press it into our lives, and that, God, we would leave here differently than what we came in. And God, if there be sin in our life, that we'd be quick to repent of it. Lord, if there be any, uh, any wrong thinking in us, that, Lord, you would correct that. And that, Lord, as we leave here, we would leave as better worshipers. God, that, that's, our, that's our prayer this morning. And so, God, would you lead us? Would you guide us? Thank you so much that you've given us, each one, each one of us who are your children, your spirit here this morning. Lord, help us to... to um, so, so Lord, to, again, to understand these things, that we might bring honor and glory to your name. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, everybody needs a Bible. If you don't have one, go ahead and slip up your hand. Uh, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 9. Uh, we don't want to hear what the pastor has to say. We want to hear what the Word has to say. I often say that. I want us to be reminded of that. Uh, I, my job is to basically say, well, what does God say? That's, that's my job. I don't want to be coming up with anything new here. So if you feel like I've come up with something that's not in the text, you always come up afterwards, right, and say, hey, pastor, you got it wrong, okay? And, and, uh, and we'll learn and grow together. But we're going to get into Genesis 9 here. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to break it down. Genesis chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I, have gave, gave, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its blood, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will reckon a rec require a reckoning. For ev from every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man." Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, 
and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds of the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered their, the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall, be, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge, enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Three things I want us to see here. In life after the flood, we must first promote the preservation of life. We must promote the preservation of life. And what will life look like now after the flood? How will it continue? And we, again, we're going to see a lot of same themes that we've seen with Adam and Eve. And we're going to see God advocating for pro procreation, for protection, for, for provision, and for prohibitions regarding life. The Lord said he will never again destroy the earth through a flood. Yet he knows the inclinations of man's heart are evil. If you'll recall, just before the flood, what? The earth is full of violence. How will it be that creation would continue on? Well, the first thing we see here is that he tells them to procreate. Verse, in verse 1 and verse 7. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. And the second time they're told to, to increase greatly. Now, I found it interesting that it's there twice. Like, why is it that there's this emphasis on go and fill the earth and multiply? Well, I think we see a little bit of it in our generation, right? In our time, why it's necessary to have a command like this? Because left to ourselves, left to our own flesh, we become what? Selfish. We become self-focused. And, you know, I, I, we could have kids, but, you know, it's kind of a hassle. Do you know how much kids cost? You know, and if I'm going to have the stuff I want, I don't know if we can afford to have kids. And what we're seeing in our society is less and less people having kids. Now, um, 
that's not a problem at redemption. Um, okay. But, but, but there is that, that thinking out there that, that you know, we, we want to do what we want to do. And of course, we see also in our time people getting married later and later in life and, and also as a result of that having less children. So he, twice the command is given. It's interesting that there's other accounts of the flood. This is, this is somewhat the, in the background continually of this flood account. When this flood account is being written by Moses, there's already other accounts out there of the flood. Like anybody who denies the flood just denies all history, right? Now, what's interesting about these other accounts is they, they have these gods and, and they're, they're angry about different things. And Hamilton notes that in the, uh, I'm terrible at pronouncing stuff, but Atrahasis, I think it is, epic, that it concludes on a different note than the biblical story. It says that overpopulation is the earth's primary problem, hence the need for population control, which can be accomplished either by nature or by the gods. Viewed in this light, Genesis 9-1 looks like a conscious rejection of this epic, right? Like these other ones are like, hey, we're going to have to control the earth and, and sometimes man will have to do it and sometimes the gods will have to control it, you know, but overpopulation is a problem. I'm so thankful that message is gone, right? Nobody's worried about overpopulation today. Or is it still being told? Still being told. Isn't it interesting how the same lies just keep going over and over and over again? I, I don't know if you were with us, uh, in a, I was trying to remember it was like month, month two months ago, but, but there, there, if you look at the science, it, it's just not true. The facts are that we are not on the edge of overpopulating the earth. That, that there, there's plenty of resources for lots and lots and lots more people. And so as Christians, we ought to always celebrate life. For some of you, God, God may call you to be a single person. He did that for Paul. I think he lived a pretty faithful life, right? And, 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 and so he served in that way. But guess what? He was pro-family. He was pro-children. And if God, for some reason, doesn't allow you got married, but he doesn't allow you to have children, and that happens for some folks as well, you still be pro-family. Every believer should be that. And, and when it comes to seeing children, they are a blessing from the Lord. That's the message we see all through the scripture. He is the author of life. And if God gives us children, then we praise him for it. We're, we're thankful for him, uh, to him for the children that he has given us. No Christian should ever be anti-family or anti-children. We celebrate life because we know the author of life who is the Lord God. And so we see in life after the flood, first this advocate, um, God advocating for procreation. Secondly, we see God protecting life. We see God protecting life. First we see from the animal kingdom, verse two. Uh, the Lord gives both instruction and sovereignly gives oversight to protection over the, over the earth. He begins by decreeing that amongst the beasts of the earth, the birds of the heavens, everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, that they will have a fear and a dread of humanity. The, the, the natural disposition of an animal is not to attack. It's to flee when it sees mankind. That's, that's a really good thing. Do we understand that? Like, 
you're not going to do too well against pretty much anything in the animal kingdom. Okay? But this is what God has done. And that we might have dominion. Again, we've seen this same theme. Procreation, be fruitful and multiply, given in Adam and Eve. Now to Noah and his family. Same thing with this idea of having dominion over the earth. And Calvin says this, the province of God is a secret bridle to restrain their violence, the, the violence of animals. This decree is a protection for humanity without the fear and dread. The animal kingdom could do some serious damage to humanity. God has placed them in the hands of humanity. Mankind will decide who lives and who does not live in the animal world. They have been delivered into our hands. Matthew says this, our passage, our passage's dread is echoed in the Jacob narrative in the related noun Hittah, where the terror of God impedes any opposition to the patriarch's return to Bethel from Haran. Fear was the response of the nations to the approaching Israelites, a fear engendered by God. God is sovereign over that. And, and we need to be mindful of that. That's the way God has created things to be post-flood. However, that's not the only way that God protects life. He protects us from the animals, but we are to be protected from one another. And we see this in verse 5. And for your lifeblood, it says, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. A lot of reckoning going on. All right, what's a reckoning? It's to give an account. It's to pay a debt. You, you owe something if you do this. If you take the lifeblood from someone, then that debt is owed. This was both for the animal and for humanity. Anybody who killed someone then owed a debt. It says in verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made his man, sorry, God made man in his own image. The one who's responsible for killing someone is to be killed as a result of the crime. We call it today the death penalty. This was put into place post flood. Again, remember, a place of violence was the earth beforehand. Uh, mankind killing one another destroying one another with, with reckless abandon. This was the picture pre-flood. And so God knows, again, the wickedness is still in our hearts, and so he wants to put fear in mankind. Listen, if you kill someone, then you will lose your life. That is the cost of taking the lifeblood of someone. Why? Because they are created in the image of God. You have taken something precious to God and chosen to kill it, then you must be killed. This was God's uh, instruction, and humanity is responsible to fulfill that. I was thinking about some of these things, like, okay, well, is that, should that still be going on today? Yeah, I believe so. Any society that doesn't take life seriously, that doesn't have a penalty for killing someone, what happens to that society? It begins to crumble. And so, as we look at this instruction, we're, we're mindful of the fact that life matters to God. 
Again, we see him advocating for procreation. Now we see him protecting life. What's really fascinating to me is I'm, I'm studying more verse by verse through Genesis. I'm starting to see more and more that the law was more of like, hey, remember all the things I've been telling you? Let's put it into a thing now, right? Like the law, when it was given to Moses, wasn't like, whoa, nobody's, we've never heard about any of these things before. It was more of a codifying of like, this is what God expects of his people. He's, well, we've already seen sacrificial system with Adam. Now we're seeing these instructions about life. And, 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 and so they're more codified when you get to the law. In Exodus 21, you want to read about what happens to, to an animal that kills someone? You'll find out in Exodus 21. This is what you're to do. The owner is to stone the animal. That animal is to be killed. If it gored someone, if it killed someone, that animal must be put down. In Numbers 35, 31, Numbers 35, 31 says this, Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. You cannot pay your way out of killing someone. Now, I want to just make a note here that killing someone is premeditated murder. It is first-degree murder that he's talking about here in, the, in, in giving the responsibility of the death penalty. If it was manslaughter, again, you think about the law. What was the case there? You go to cities of refuge. They're going to they're gonna check out your case and see if it was truly manslaughter or not. If it was manslaughter, then you do not get put to death. But premeditated murder was to result in the death penalty. It's interesting, just going back to the terminology, his fellow man in verse 5. It, it is better translated his brother. His brother. Anybody says his brother killed, this is what he should do. It takes us back to Cain and Abel. And Cain's question, remember, am I bro my brother's keeper? And the answer is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. And when it comes to humanity, we are all brothers and sisters. We are all been created by one God. We have one Father. And when it comes to life on this earth, he expects that society will hold a person responsible who has killed someone. Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, we see that it is the government's responsibility to make sure that that happens. So God preserves life through protecting life. Thirdly, we see God being pro-life when it comes to provision. Verse 3, provision. Just as he had given Adam and Eve food, here we see it again in verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Just a couple of things to note here as we think about this. Um, definitely a lot of guys are excited here about this, uh, this thing being lots of good barbecues as a result of this provision. And, and, and um, but there's some things that we need to note. One... There was no clean or unclean in this particular regard. Just animals, any animals that you want to eat, you can eat. Uh, it says every moving thing that lives. If you found something that was dead, you weren't to eat it, right? And that's protection. 
who knows why that animal died. You just leave it, okay? So, but every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And, and so they, they, they give them this stipulation that they could eat any kind of food that they wanted, whether it be animal life or plant life. And we still kind of live in the, under this same regard, right? Uh, there was that period of time for the Jewish people, hey, don't eat these things, but you can eat these things. And then a lot of confusion for the people like the disciples. But God's like, hey, it's okay to eat bacon. It's okay. You can eat it. And, and, and again, we're very thankful uh, for that. All right. So, but this was, this was the, this is what they could eat. But now there was one prohibition. Now, again, think about this. One prohibition, just like in the garden. One prohibition. Don't eat from this tree in this particular regard with the giving of food. There is one prohibition. We see this in verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. Humanity are not to be savages when it came to eating animals. They're commanded to not eat or drink blood. Why? Blood is equated with life. In the Old Testament. This is the basis of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Why was it that, the, that, that a lamb, the giving of a, a, of a lamb or a goat and, and them dying, why would it cover our sins? How, how in, in any sense did it cover our sins? Because their life had been taken in your place. This is why the Lamb of God had to come to take our place. Matthew puts it like this, the rationale for sacrificial atonement was the substitution of the animal's life, represented by the shed blood in place of the offerer's life, who thereby averted divine reparations. And so they were not to eat the blood. They were, they were to, to make sure that the, the animal had been killed, first of all, and that then the blood had been drained. While the Lord had given animals as food to humanity, there was still to be respect for the fact that that life had been taken. Like all creation is precious, right? We, we ought to have respect for animals. Now, I think our society's maybe kind of taken this to a different level, but, but every creature has been created in, 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 um, by our Lord God. And so there should be still this respect when we kill an animal for food. Now, I, I, Pastor Michael and I, we, we were flying back from uh, L.A. last night, and I was like, what do you think? Like, is this still a thing? Like, I've been in cultures where they, they would take a basin on killing a goat or something like that. They'd take it, slit its throat, and they'd catch all the blood in a basin. And that was part of their dinner. That was a little shocking for me, okay? But is there still a thing? Is it still a thing? Well, um, Hamilton, in his commentary, said that the, the, the Hebrew word that is used here would suggest that this is a permanent thing, that, that, that we ought not to eat or drink blood. Why? Because the significance is still there. It is a life. It is, it is, it is, the, is the, there's a respect thing going on here. And so that is the one prohibition given when it came to the food. And I think it's still in effect today. All right. God 
is the God of life. This is how life works post-flood. Have babies, don't kill people, or you will be killed, and here's some grub. But don't drink the blood. It seems like, Pastor, you could have said that a whole lot quicker, right? But that's what's there, okay? So in life after the flood, secondly, we must proclaim the promise of life. We must proclaim the promise of life. Last week we saw that God had said, hey, I'm not going to destroy the earth again through a flood. Now we see him formalizing this covenant with Noah and his sons. This is the first time that the sons are spoken to by God. The covenant is not just for Noah It's not just for the sons, but as we see, it's for all of humanity, for all time. While we were on this earth, this covenant is being made. Not just for humanity, but also for all those who have come off the ark as well. So for for humanity and for all living creatures. The covenant is initiated by God. You look at verses 9 and 11. He says this, I establish my covenant. Verse 17, I have established. established. It's all of the Lord. The Lord is the one who's initiating this. Typically in a covenant, it's like, I will do this. And then the other person says, and I will do this. And we covenant together and we're going to do this for, for the rest of time. But in this particular case, it is God alone who is making the promises. Ross says this, A covenant is an agreement, a treaty, or a pact between parties, which both parties swear by oath to observe. Covenants that the Lord makes with people are therefore binding. He guarantees them with an oath. Right? I don't know if you realize this, but if you're married, you covenanted together. That's what you, you promised. You made an oath to each other and you promised to not break that till death do you part. The covenant is a, is, a, is, a, is a very important thing. And what we see about our God as we're learning about our God is that he is a covenant-keeping God. He makes a covenant and he never, ever breaks it. He is always faithful to his word. That should bring us great encouragement this morning. Anybody here ever said they were going to do something and not done it? Does that, does that happen? Okay, there's a few of you still awake. That's great. Um, yeah, we all have said we're going to do something and have not. It's part of who we are, unfortunately, in our flesh. But by God's grace... He helps us to be more like him, which is a God who is always faithful to his promises. Now, I would just, you know, this is just a side thing. Like, take courage if you have covenanted in marriage. God is for you. He's with you. And yes, marriage is hard. It can be really difficult at times. But let that covenant be the glue that keeps you together, right? And if you're covenanted together this morning, then figure it out, right? Or just be miserable for the rest of your existence. Those are your two options, okay? We don't use the D word, all right? If you have, they're grace, and we can talk later. But if you're married this morning, no D word, all right? 
Okay, back to the text. Note the promises that he's making here. Verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Despite the sinfulness of humanity, God has vowed that to mankind that he will never again cut off all flesh by the flood nor destroy the earth. This vow was made to the whole earth universally and for all time. As long as the earth is here, that's what we learned last week in chapter 8, as long as the earth is here, God will never again cause a global flood to happen. Covenants, as we are going to see as we continue our way through Genesis, often come with a sign. We're going to get to the Abrahamic covenant. What was the sign with, of the Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision, right? We're going to get to the, the Mosaic covenant, the law, the sign, Sabbath. This sign, as you all probably know here this morning, is the rainbow we see this in verses 12 through 16. And again, verse 12, we see it repeated. Who is this for? For all future generations. Guess what? That includes you this morning. You are part of this covenant. God has made this covenant to you. And he says in verse 13, I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bear clouds of the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Again, that, that confident expectation, never again. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Everlasting covenant. Four times covenant is mentioned here. Three times bow is mentioned here. Three times cloud is mentioned here. He's like, hey, are you getting this? Are you understanding the commitment that I'm making to you? That I will never again destroy the earth in this way? And again, remember, God never goes back on his promises. So any notion that the earth will be flooded is wrong, right? Not going to happen ever again. When we see the rainbow, what should you think of? God's grace. God's grace. Every time you see a rainbow, you ought to worship him and say, God, thank you so much for being gracious and merciful. Because as we see that bow, we're also reminded we deserve death. God did at one time say, enough, 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 enough. That You're so wicked, you're so evil, I must judge the earth. And he did. And we, guess what? We still deserve it. He ought to flood the earth right now. That's what we deserve. But in his grace and his mercy, he says, I have covenanted that I will never again destroy the earth in this way. And so when you see a rainbow, praise God. You know, pastor, I don't, I don't necessarily feel that way these days. When I see a rainbow, I get kind of angry. What's going on? Well, Satan, he loves to twist truth, doesn't he? 
He loves to take what God has made and made it good and, and, and try to destroy and twist. And this is what he does over and over and over again. And so there's a group of people now who have taken the rainbow and said, you know what? The rainbow actually represents this. God, who made the rainbow, we don't actually acknowledge. But what we do is that we say every time we see a rainbow, it reminds us that we are one together and, and, and that we celebrate that which God does not celebrate. And so we, can, we could get angry when we see a rainbow now because we're like, well, that's not true. That's not true. You, 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 you're, you're, you've just totally changed the rules, right? You're like, this represents white. This color, this is white. And we're playing make-believe. And so we're like, well, that's, that's not true, actually. It's, it's black. It's black. But can I just advocate this morning that as the people of God, you always, every time you see a rainbow, your first thing is praise God for his grace and his, for, his, for his mercy. Thank you, Lord, that you saved a sinner like me. And then secondly, and this was somewhat ironic, those who celebrate the rainbow who are right now walking in rebellion against him, the only reason that they still have life in their lungs is because of God's covenant of grace and mercy to not flood the earth. And so would you be moved to pray for them every time you see the rainbow? God, thank you for the mercy and grace to me, but God, thank you for the mercy and grace you've given to all mankind who walk in rebellion against you. As we learned in 2 Peter 3, God, you, you are gracious and merciful and you have not yet returned because you desire that still people would be saved. And so when every time we see a rainbow, may we, again, praise him, and then may that motivate us to go and to proclaim God's grace and mercy to mankind that they might be saved through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we should do when we see the rainbow. God is so faithful this morning. The signs of a covenant are important. We just last weekend, we celebrated the new covenant. How? What was the sign that we celebrated? Through the Lord's Supper. And guess what? Next weekend, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to celebrate the new covenant by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Hugh says this, it reminds us, the rainbow, speaking of the rainbow here, he says, it reminds us too of the ultimate work of the new covenant when God's wrath was propitiated by his own son on the cross so that all who are in Christ find grace instead of wrath. Christ, the great Noah, saves his people from the waters of death by his faithful obedience and atoning sacrifice. And so we celebrate God's grace when we see the rainbow and we celebrate God's grace as we come together over the Lord's Supper. Grace and mercy that brings us life. It's my prayer here this morning that every one of you here has chosen life. God is the author of life. He is the author of our physical lives, and he, he's given us a way to protect us and preserve life here on this earth and, and giving us provision for food, but he's also provided for us 
spiritually by giving us Jesus Christ. And anyone here this morning who would acknowledge the fact that they're a sinner who's walked in rebellion against him and confess their sins to him and repent of that sin and place their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ would receive grace and mercy. And instead of receiving the wrath that is due us, you would receive grace through Christ. That's my prayer that every one of you here this morning have done that. Well, in life after the flood, we may, may we proclaim the promise of life. And then lastly, in life after the flood, may we pick the path of life. May we pick the path of life. As we transition, 18 and 19 are these transition verses. Uh, we see them talking about the three sons of uh, Noah. Next week, we're going to talk about the table of nations. Uh, how did, you know, again, Moses is writing much after this, right? How did we get all the nations? How, how did this take place? Well, we're getting, starting to get glimpses of it here in verses 18 and 19. Shem, Ham, and Japheth are mentioned. But then, what? There's also this other guy. Canaan is mentioned. Canaan. Man, that, that rings a bell. I think I've read about Canaan, maybe not just here. Canaan. The land of Canaan, which is, which is what? It's the promised land. This is the place they're about to go in and invade as they're receiving all of these words, Genesis through Pentateuch, or sorry, Genesis through It is the Pentateuch. Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, has been all written pre-enter into the promised land. So as they think about Canaan, they're like, oh yeah, uh, right here. Where did this guy come from? What, where did his roots? Well, we're seeing that here as we read this last account. And then note that he says, it is from these three sons that all the people of the earth have been dispersed. And anybody was like, well, it was a localized flood and uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And, but there was other families and other places. Eh, verse right here just says, no, that's not true. Everybody who's on the earth right now, it's only from these three guys. That's it. All right? And, and, and so... Well, what's life look like now post-flood? We've been given a covenant. We've been told how life will go on. And now we see them actually living out life, verse 20. Sadly, we're going to see garden, fruit, sin, nakedness all over again. <clears throat> verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil. Uh, who else was a man of the soil? Adam. Adam, yeah. Adam was a man of the soil. Okay. And he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Time has happened. We've already read about Canaan. You're going to learn next week. He's the fourth son of Ham. Right? So we're talking years, decades are going, going by here. You plant a vineyard. I know that None of us Albertans know what that is or how that works, but uh, you plant it and it takes time to grow, okay? And, and before you're going to get any grapes off the thing, okay? So t time has went by. Noah, he's been, he's been a great example up till this, yeah? Right? Noah 
faithful, faithful, faithful. God says, do this. He does it hundreds, hundreds of years of faithfulness. Anyone here been faithful to God for hundreds of years? Okay. So, so he's been a great example, but now he's a great example in another way. We can never let down our guards. Never let down our guards. We have to always be clinging to the Lord. We have to keep our eyes on him. We have to be walking by the Spirit. Or we wind up doing something really stupid like Noah. It's interesting. There's been a whole lot of excuses tried to be made for Noah. Hey, hey, do you know? Like, you probably didn't know. Probably didn't understand how this whole getting drunk thing worked. You know, he was just, you know, and, and, and you know, so... I, he, it's, he was drunk. Anywhere in the Bible where it says drunkenness is good, that's a sin. He sinned. We don't know why. We don't know if it's a long day. or We have no idea, right, why he decided to just keep drinking. But he did. He sinned. Reminder again, no one is immune to sin. It doesn't matter how long you've been faithful here this morning. You're not immune to rebel against God, and so we all must cling to him. It is in him and him alone that we overcome sin. But there was that fruit, and he ate of it, and he sinned, and then he was naked. And there's shame again. The same thing that happened with Adam and Eve now has happened to Noah. Well, sin has its consequences. I, I, think, um, I think, again, this whole thing, we, just to help us to, remind, to have a biblical perspective of nakedness, because our society is not great when it comes to nakedness. In fact, getting worse and worse all the time, right? Less and less clothing out there. Maybe you should go to the pool and just wear whatever you want. Those kinds of things happening in our province right now. But nakedness is not ever advocated in the Bible. Uh, Walkie's helpful here. Habakkuk con connects exposing one's nakedness through intoxication with uh, prurient voyeurism, which is what? An act that deprives another of his or her dignity and desire for propriety. Nakedness is associated with shame. It's publicly demeaning and is incompatible with living in God's presence. So this is what's going on. It's a big deal, right? That now Ham sees his nakedness. It's bringing shame. Verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan, note, continue this focus. Canaan, see Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. Now, again, there's been a ton of stuff written on what's going on here. It must not have been simply that he looked at his father and then went and told his brother, there's got to be something more going on. You know, was there some kind of lewd act? What was, what was going on? There's all kinds of theories out there. I, I, I don't think any of those theories are really helpful. I think this is look at the text and see what happened. What happened? He sees his father in a shameful position. And what's his response? To go tell his brothers. That's, what's, that's the sin that's going on here. 
He, what he ought to have done is kept it to himself and done exactly what his brothers did. But instead, he uses it as a position of power. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disrespect my father now, and I'm going to tell my brothers what's happened. He's, he's making a mockery of his father. That's what he's doing. Matthew says this, Ham ridiculed the old man's downfall. In the ancient world, insulting one's parents was a serious matter that warranted the extreme penalty of death. Mosaic legislation reflected this sentiment. This patriarchal, patriarchal incident illustrated the abrogation of the fifth commandment, honor, honor your father and mother. To do so means divine retaliation for the crime is not against parent alone, but is viewed as contempt for God's order in creation. And still today, you and I are called to respect our parents. And he has broken that rule big time here. He should have done what his, father, what his brothers do. What did they do? Then Shem and Japheth, when they hear about it, they took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and they walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Right? They, they put this cloak between them, and they, and they take their time going back. Right? They get to this, his feet, and they cover him. So they do not see his nakedness. They do what God did for Adam and Eve in the garden, covered the shame. It's what you and I ought to do when we see one another in sin. We, we, instead of going and telling someone else, Hey, 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 did you hear what this person did? No, you go to that person and you take them to the one who can cover their shame through the blood of Jesus Christ. And you help them. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. This is what Peter quoted in 1 Peter 4, 8. 1 Peter 4, 8, we ought to cover one another's offenses. We ought to help one another, and, and this is what the brothers do. Well, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his youngest son, what his youngest son had done to him, he then does this. He says, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now, I want us to note a few things here. This is prophetic, what he is giving here is prophetic. It's, it's, not, it's not just simply him, I'm just really angry about what my kid did. But, but he is speaking ultimately the words of God here. Note that he doesn't talk about Ham here. He talks about Canaan, the fourth son. And as you now trace, we have the benefit of being much later than this. As you trace through, Canaan is known for his depravity. The people of Canaan are known for their depravity. So wicked were they that God decides that he's going to take them out through the Israelites. Again, I think about, I think about you know, I'm an Israelite. In the prom I'm out in the wilderness and I'm getting ready to go into the promised land. Why would I destroy the people of Canaan? What gripe do I have with them? I mean, the Egyptians, sure, take them all out. And we've been 400 years of slavery. Like, that has been terrible. But, like, what gripe do I have with Canaan? 
And so this is giving instruction. Listen, this is why you are to take them out, because they are wicked. And over and over and over again, as they get ready to go into the promised land, it's like, do not follow the way of Canaan. For if you do, you will be cursed, just as they are being cursed here. You, if you follow that way, you'll be cursed. If you follow the way of Shem, which we see here, you will be blessed He also said, verse 26, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Blessed be the Lord. Interesting, huh? Did you catch that? He's blessing Yahweh, not Shem, which takes them kind of, Shem kind of out of it. Hamilton puts it like this. By directing the blessing to Yahweh instead of to Shem, the narrator subordinates the human actors to the divine character. It is Yahweh rather than Shem who is to be praised. Shem will be blessed, but it's through Yahweh. It is by God's provision that that Shem will be blessed, and it is through Shem that we will see the fulfillment of the promise back in Genesis 3.15. Once again, we see the line of a woman, the one, the born of woman, who will crush the seed of the serpent. Before, there was the line of Cain, and then the line of Seth. Now there's the line of Shem versus the line of Canaan. And God is making a promise. Guess what? Do you know who's from the line of Shem? Abraham. Abraham. But now there's a choice to be made. Will you be blessed or will you be cursed? And so it is for us today. Will you choose blessing or will you choose cursing? This is really what the Mosaic Covenant is all about. Again, as they're looking back, they're going to, will I choose the way of Canaan or will we do what God calls us to do, destroy Canaan and walk in his ways and be of the line of Seth? Blessing and cursing stand before you even today. Now, Quickly, because I know this has been long. Quickly, some people are like, well, that doesn't seem fair. Like, look, the people of Canaan, they're just cursed. Like, what are they supposed to do? Well, everybody left to themselves, guess what? They choose the line of Canaan. In our flesh, we choose rebellion against God over and over and over again. But you know what's really cool as we look and look at the whole story, the whole narrative? There's two ladies who are the line of Canaan, Tamar and Rahab. Guess whose lineage they are part of? The Messiah. God in his grace saves those who turn to him, who place their faith and trust in him. And I want to just hold that out to you this morning. There's no one trapped in their sin. If you would humble yourselves and repent, and put your trust in Christ, you too would be saved. No one, no one on judgment will be, day will be able to say, well, I would have I done it, I would have repented, but, you know, I, I couldn't. Everyone will be held accountable for their sins, each and every one of us. Then we read the last two verses, guess what? Noah dies. Sin still has consequences on this earth. In life after the flood, people still die. Still happening today. And with that, may that be a reminder that we all will die in this room. None of us know when. 
I can guarantee you nobody's living 950 years here. Some will die quicker than others. But no one knows the day or the hour. And so can I just say, don't put off the decision to choose Christ, but choose him today. Choose life. I think as we, we sum up this chapter, this is the thing. God is the God of life. He's the God of grace. He's the God of protection. He's the God who says, choose me and you will find life. I am the Savior. I am the God who's, who, who's over it all. So look to me. Choose life. May that be the testimony of everyone here this morning. We have chosen life, and we will praise the one who is over our lives. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. God, we thank you so much for this time together. Lord, we do thank you that you are over it all, over our lives, every single part of it. Lord, you have given us life. We have been part of the fulfillment of be fruitful and multiply. Lord, you have preserved our lives. You have protected our lives. You have provided food for us, God. We give you thanks, Lord, for all that you've given us. Everything that we have is from you. Lord, we thank you for grace and mercy this morning. The grace and mercy that we're reminded of when we see the rainbow in the sky and the grace and mercy that we have received through Jesus Christ. And Lord, even this morning as we're reminded that the choice between cursing and blessing stands in front of us. Lord, if we would choose your ways, we choose blessing. Lord, if we choose sin, Lord, we choose cursing. God, I pray for each and every one of us here this morning. God, I pray that there be anyone who is walking in sin, Lord, this morning, that they would come under holy fear and they would be quick to repent of their sin and once again place their trust in you and walk in your ways. God, as we leave this place, would you give us compassion for the lost? Would you give us compassion for those who are still walking in rebellion against you? And Lord, help us to be quick to proclaim the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Lord, we give it all to you. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.